0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Mourner. The stakes couldn't be higher in Washington today. Again, the Trump administration produces headlines and tweets by the minute, it seems. Scott Horsley lives that every day as an NPR White House correspondent. Horsley grew up in Denver, got his start here. And Scott, welcome back to town. Great to be home, Ryan. Thank you. Give me a sense of the pace. What has the last week
1: been like in Washington? It, it's been even more frantic than usual, and and that's saying something by the standards of this administration because this is kind of a, a nonstop news feed that the White House puts on for us. But uh, even with events really largely beyond their control this week, uh, we've been we've been just running to keep up uh, every 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 day. There's been a new development in the Kavanaugh story or a counter development, uh, and then coupled with that, we've also had the uh, the will he or won't he uh, uh, questions surrounding Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General who indeed. oversees the Mueller investigation, and then Trump at the United Nations. That was in that was my indeed. little piece of the story. I was I was assigned to uh, to write our digital coverage of the president's uh, speech to the UN General Assembly, which on any ordinary day would be the lead story and would be sort of dominating the coverage, and and uh, against everything else that was going on in Washington, it was almost kind of an afterthought except that it was a revealing moment in the opening sentences of the president's speech where he he drew guffaws from the assembled diplomats and world leaders when he boasted about all of his accomplishments and and you know Trump himself said well I didn't expect that reaction so it was it was a, it was it it was perhaps more revealing in terms of the reaction than the speech itself which was a kind of predictable defense of the President's America First policies.
0: Another member of the White House Press Corps, Sun Min
1: Kim of The Washington Post, tweeted, what a century this week has been. <laughs> <laughs> my, one of my editors uh, uh, in a note to the staff this morning said, uh, hang in there, guys, only three more months till the end of the week. <laughs> uh, I will say that
0: critics of the press say that you we are missing the real story of the Trump administration, that the news cycle is dominated by tweets and outrageous statements, and that as a result, uh more important things, perhaps more consequential things, and maybe even less sexy things to cover are going uncovered. Are reporters too busy
1: chasing trivia, do you think? I, I think there's something to that complaint. I, I'm I'm uh sensitive to that Allegation, and I I sometimes share it. I I sometimes find myself uh, chasing the the latest shiny object or the latest sexy uh, sidebar and have to fight to try to keep my focus on the more consequential things that this administration is doing. Well, How do you do that? Well, it, it's, it's a challenge because obviously, uh, we're in a competitive news environment. Uh, we, we're, we're competing with what our, our, our rivals in the newspaper business do. We, we're competing with what's on cable TV. We, we don't try to be, we try not to be slaves to what those other news outlets are covering, uh, or, or what's on Twitter, or the president's own feed or, or others. But it's a constant challenge to try to keep your eye, at least one eye and one ear, on you know what the what the foreign policy that this president's pursuing. What's the economic policy? What are they doing at the EPA? What's happening with immigration? Very consequential decisions, which often are not as sexy as you know the latest allegations against a Supreme Court nominee. And, and not to minimize, I mean, the, uh, what happens to Brett Kavanaugh is. Profoundly important, uh, and the way that this president has been reshaping the federal bench is going to have consequences for decades to come. So I don't, I don't really put the Kavanaugh hearings no. in that, you know, shiny distraction uh, category. But uh, many of the the smaller stories that come out of the president's Twitter feed are really kind of uh, uh, short term distractions, and and it's it's a struggle to not lose sight of the bigger picture
0: this Supreme Court fight indeed is an important one because this next justice will be a decisive vote in many cases. And it's interesting because polls show whom you believe Kavanaugh or his accusers is closely related to your party affiliation. I wonder, Scott Horsley of NPR News, as you craft your stories, do you just assume that listeners and readers will filter everything you say through
1: a political lens. Yes, <laughs> which, which doesn't necessarily affect how I craft the stories. But I, I know this from my own reporting. I know this from spending time talking to people around the country of, of all political persuasions. The fact that the Kavanaugh hearing has become a partisan Rorschach test is just emblematic of where our politics are today. Uh, and I we, we try very hard at NPR, and I know Colorado Public Radio does the same – to, to be uh, a voice that everybody can can listen to and feel like they 're learning something uh, whatever their their partisan persuasion might be, but it 's certainly true that even not even on questions where you know who who do you believe in a in a contest of of wills but even factual information like how 's the economy doing or how big was the president president 's inaugural crowd, even objective facts are now subject to uh, being colored by one's partisan persuasion. How do you check
0: for bias in your own reporting? I mean, this is something that I constantly ask myself: Is there is there bias in me that I'm not even privy to? How do I check for it? How do you answer that question for yourself? I think
1: I think just asking the question is a, is a good first step. Just just recognizing that all of us are uh, vulnerable to implicit bias or unconscious bias is a, is a good first step. And then it's about trying to cast a wide net, trying to talk to people with perspectives that and, and experiences different than your own uh, and different than the, perhaps the people you talked to yesterday uh, or different than the people who you might be seeing on cable TV, uh, trying to cast a wide net and wherever possible dealing in fact as opposed to opinion.
0: You also, I know, ask a question of people you interview
1: at the very end of the conversation. What is that question? It, it's a, my sort of rote question to end an interview is, what should I have asked? Is there something I should have asked that I didn't? Or is there is there just something you wanted to tell me that I didn't give you the opening to do so? Because I don't want someone to go away from one of my interviews feeling like, well, gosh, he never really got to the heart of the matter. and. I often get some of the most interesting answers to that sort of open-ended question. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan
0: Warner, and we're speaking with NPR White House correspondent Scott Horsley, who grew up in Denver, cut his radio chops here, and uh, he's back in town. I want to talk, Scott, about the, the tension, maybe even the hostility between the Trump administration and the press. Here's White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders in the White House briefing room just a while back.
2: With this sort of misinformation and lack of interest uh, that's so pervasive in the media, it's completely understandable for the president to be frustrated. John Decker.
0: Sanders was responding, by the way, to a reporter who asked whether the press was the enemy of the people, as, as the president has stated. Uh, now, here's Trump himself. Uh, flatly refusing to take a CNN reporter's question.
1: CNN is fake news. I don't take questions from CNN. John Roberts of Fox.
0: What are the dynamics in the press room? Help us understand what journalists
1: are trying to achieve, good or bad, and what the press secretary is. Well, sadly, a lot of what you see on the televised press briefing from the White House, and, and those have become rarer and rarer as the months have gone by. But unfortunately, a lot of that is kind of performance art. It's not necessarily a legitimate give and take where the reporters ask questions and the press secretary provides answers. Is that because it's live? It's because it's on television. Uh-huh. And so it's an opportunity for, on the one hand, Sarah Sanders to score points uh, and and get her message out there. And oftentimes the the message of this White House is deliberately designed to undermine the independent press corps. And I will take some responsibility, or, or I think the press corps has to take some responsibility for sometimes asking questions which are really just designed to showcase the reporter being tough or being adversarial and not really necessarily designed to to elicit an answer. I, I'm not sure what the answer would be to does the president believe the press is the enemy of the people. I mean, that, that's that's a provocative sort of sh- showboating question, if you ask me. I think you're, you're, we're, our time would be better spent asking for explanations of, of policies or actions that this administration has taken. Um it, 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 there are, I think, from my perspective, too many questions in the daily briefing that, or the now weekly or bi-monthly briefing that, that f- sort of follow the pattern of when did the president stop beating his wife. Mm. Uh, th- that said, I, I think uh, there, there is always an, a natural adversarial quality to the press-White House relationship. It has gotten, I'd say, m- more toxic in the current environment.
0: The president uh, often makes statements that just aren't true. Sure, uh, Some media outlets even come out and say he's lying. What's your standard for reporting something is false? And I suppose maybe a higher standard because there's intent behind it you'd have to prove to say something is a
1: lie. We will, we will call out the president or other members of the administration when they uh, – Say something that is false, and we we will point out when something is is at odds with the facts. Uh, I do that routinely because they they spread falsehoods routinely n p r has a policy uh not to accuse the president or any members of the administration of lying uh, not not because we are afraid to call them out on falsehoods, but mainly because the feeling of the policymakers at nPR is that the the l word in particular. The lie word is a is a turn off to listeners, and then as soon as you've accused the president of lying, uh, some significant fraction of the audience either literally or figuratively turns off the radio, and then you've lost your chance to be a source of information and
0: to simply pre- present the fact.
1: We will we will to, to, we will to, to we are not shy about. Uh, Identifying falsehoods, we just don't use the l word and i and I'm aware that we have lots of listeners who disagree with that position, but that's that's the policy we've taken.
0: Well, Scott Horsley, this has all been very serious, and I thought we might wrap up with uh how you got introduced to radio in Denver. you went to manual high school i'll say Proud tell me, thunderbolt class of eighty <laughs> four very briefly, tell me about your first
1: time on the air here How about that uh, well I, I I got my start actually working as a, a on a magazine show on the old KNUS AM radio. They, they had a public affairs show for young people, uh, or created by young people for a general audience. I think we aired at like five o'clock Sunday mornings. It was a great time. Slot. <laughs> but even at that on, un- on hour, uh, I would, I would hear from people who heard, uh, heard me on the radio, which was a thrill. And, uh, that was very exciting, and, and I thought, well, I'd like to kind of keep doing this, and here I am still doing it all these decades later. Yes. You have a better time slot,
0: even now. Even <laughs> Much better now, time slot. Uh, yeah, okay. Much better time slot. Thank you for being with us.
1: It's been a pleasure, Ryan.
0: Scott Horsley is White House correspondent for NPR. He grew up in Denver. For the first time, Colorado has issued a birth certificate that identifies someone as intersex, Now, this is not for a newborn. It's a correction of a certificate for Anunnaki Ray Marquez. Marquez prefers the pronoun they, and they are only the third person in the country to receive something like this. Marquez joins us to talk about being intersex and the difficult task of getting that reflected on their birth certificate. Anunnaki, welcome to the program. Thank you. What does the term intersex mean? Help us understand that.
3: Intersex means that you've been born with chromosomes, hormones, genitals or a reproductive system that is somehow a mixture of m- both male and female. And there's many um variations of that. And well, I have and I have one of those variations.
0: Lots of variations of it. So it's it's not one thing.
3: And I wonder what misconceptions you encounter. Um I'm mostly mixed up as a transgender man and when I'm not. So that's the most biggest, that's the biggest misconception.
0: Uh, Help us understand why people confuse the two, and and clear that up.
3: Well, when I was born, there was no accurate way to document my sex. Um, So they assigned me as female, and I was raised as female. Um, So my original birth certificate said female. So if I now am living my authentic self, appearing masculine and as a guy, you know, people are going to see that I lived as female and they're going to see me transition to male and that makes me appear as a transgender man. I see.
0: Uh again, your original birth certificate identified you as female and did that did that ever feel right to you?
3: Um no, matter of fact, at 3 and 4 years old, I was sent to therapy um back in the 1970s, they called my problem perceptionally handicapped. I was literally taught, I went to therapy to be taught that I was a girl. And um, obviously that wasn't accurate. And um, so I, I've lived most of my life not really understanding exactly who I am until um, I started seeing other people gain their human rights. And I learned about other intersex people like Tiger DeVore and of Valoria, Pigeon Pagonis. And, you know, their stories started coming out into the open as more and more people came out. And I started to piece together my life and what had happened to me and why why I literally had become medically sick with the treatment of of appearing female, and so my my life went full circle
0: in certain ways, you've assumed typically female roles, and and you celebrate that you and your husband James have two biological children whom you carried to term and breastfed uh growing up though, did your parents? and family understand at all what was going on within your body. I even wonder what your relationship was
3: to that term intersex. Um, intersex wasn't even a term used in our country until the 1990s, so that term was never used. As a matter of fact, I didn't even own that term to, des- to describe myself until 2014, and that was after speaking to Tiger DeVore, an intersex man who's also a sociologist and a doctor and he said, if you know, if this isn't intersex, I don't know what else to call it. Hmm. Um, so the terms disorder of sex development and many, many different diagnoses to describe hormonal variations, I would call variations, which the, which the medical community to this day would call a disorder or a syndrome. Um, I've been labeled with many, many um, different things in my medical records, um, which now obviously is being respected as my actual biological sex. Um, however, most people um, to this day are being diagnosed as intersex. They're not being told they are born intersex.
0: Diagnosed, which implies some sort of condition or disease as opposed to you are intersex exactly. uh, and, and declaring that from someone's birth. Exactly. And, and that's mm-hmm. really the distinction you want to make and the fight you've had to fight.
3: Absolutely uh-huh. yes and and it was thanks to Sarah Kelly Keenan, who became a dear friend of mine. She was the first in New York City, and she happens to be a paralegal as well, so she knew how to word things, you know, so I went to my doctor and here here lies the problem. I now have a doctor that has been taught to diagnose this, and now i 'm asking him to honor that this is my biological sex. Uh-huh. Let me Mm -hmm. just say,
0: Sarah Kelly Keenan also got an intersex birth certificate. Do I have that right?
3: Yes, she was the first in New York City, the first in the country.
0: And that was really an inspiration to you. So what
3: what did it take
0: to get an intersex uh, phrasing on your birth certificate from Colorado? Help us understand that.
3: Well the first stage is you have to go to your doctor and you have to persuade them to agree that this is your biological sex and obviously that's very subjective lots of doctors aren't going to agree. My doctor happened to go to the board of ethics and got permission from the board of ethics to write that letter that I needed. And in order to do this, you have to write a you have to motion the court, so in my case I had to motion Clay County court. So I had to motion the court with a letter Documenting that my biological sex truly is intersex, and it had to come from my doctor after he evaluated my medical records. So you physically have to prove this. You can't just—it's—it's it's not like transgender or about gender identity. You physically have to prove this.
0: And just help me understand: Clay County is not in Colorado. That's where you live now, correct? Yes. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're—you're uh, you're in Florida, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then, okay, so you had to do that uh, where you live, and then how did you interact with Colorado to get this amended certificate?
3: Well, at the time, they've changed protocol thanks to my birth certificate, but at the time, there was absolutely no protocol to change a birth certificate to intersex. So I had to go through the same um, protocol as a transgender person, and in that protocol, you have to have a, a letter to prove that you are indeed who you are, and in the case of a transgender person, you'd have to prove that you've transitioned surgically or hormonally. And in my case, I had to prove that there was no transition, huh. that I was, I've been this way since inception.
0: Right. This is further conflating the idea of intersex and transgender, which you're trying to make a real distinction between. And so yes. this, this cost you thousands of dollars. It took, I think, 15 months. yes just want to say you may very well be one of the last people to have to go through such a cumbersome process, uh, as you have hinted. This month, the Colorado Department of Health proposed changes that will make it easier to alter a birth certificate to indicate that someone is intersex. And uh, that designation can also be declared at birth rather than having to wait and make that change later, as we've talked about. A final decision on this is scheduled to be made in December. What did it feel like? Did you get the birth certificate in the mail? I, and what did it feel like, if if so, to open that envelope?
3: Oh, it was amazing. I had it FedEx to me and um, it was amazing. You know, you I'm 50 years old and I finally have a correct birth certificate. You know, it's awesome. So, yeah. How does your family today
0: view you and what's
3: your relationship with them? Um, my, since I did change in my appearance from female to male, uh, my kids call me Vader, which is German for father. Um, my husband, I like to joke, has been kicked out of the gay closet he didn't know he was in. Um, I see, because
0: you present to many as male.
3: Yes. It, without people knowing my story, I just look like an androgynous, piratey-looking guy.
0: <laughs> piratey. Yeah. Okay.
3: Because I don't cut my hair, you know. So. Uh,
0: but your husband has, has stuck with you and uh, is fine with this with this change?
3: Well, he always obviously, He was obviously with me, you know, for, for 29 years, so my body hasn't changed. I've never had surgery or anything like that. So he knew that he was with the person that was different. At the time, we weren't using the word intersex. You know, so he was obviously okay with that. It was quite a transition for both of us in order to accept the social changes that go with appearing as a gay couple because obviously, you know, there's a lot of prejudice.
0: Well, thank you so much for explaining this to us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Anunnaki Ray Marquez is the first person from Colorado to get a corrected birth certificate identifying them as intersex. And we'll be right back with how Colorado entrepreneurs are seizing on the needs of seniors. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. (laughs) This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There will be more seniors than children in this country by 2035. And by 2050, the population over 65 is expected to double. That has entrepreneurs seeing dollar signs in new products that meet seniors' needs. The so-called longevity economy is the subject of the disruptors today. Our coverage of startups in this state. Okay, so falling is a major health risk for older people. And the Denver-based company Nimble Science is working to reduce that risk. Nimble CEO Tom Verdon was just on a panel at Denver Startup Week about the longevity economy. He joins me. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. And the moderator of that panel was Karen Brown of Aging 2.0. Hi, Karen. Good morning. Karen, your organization supports innovators in the field of aging. And this is a huge market, more than $7 trillion in annual economic activity in the U.S. alone. Besides falling, what other issues do you see entrepreneurs trying to tackle in this market?
4: So uh, Aging 2.0 really focuses on what we call the grand challenges of aging. Okay, That includes things like mobility, transportation, housing, uh, end-of-life care coordination, um, caregiving, um, retirement security. Those are some of the things that we really look closely at. And we have innovators across the world tackling those problems.
0: I wonder how many entrepreneurs focus on the idea of keeping seniors in their homes, which so many of them desire to stay in for as long as possible.
4: You know, in terms of the actual numbers focusing on that, I can't define that. But I can tell you that in the six years that Aging 2 has been around, we have seen more than 3,000 products or services offered to the aging population to improve their lives and help them age in a better way.
0: In a better way. Uh, Well, let's talk about your company, Nimble, Tom, which says its goal is to prevent a
5: million falls. Absolutely. Of all the medical issues facing seniors, why did you choose Falling? Well, it was actually a coincidence. Uh, I was living in the south of France, and uh, I went to a networking event. I met this amazing doctor named J.P. Farsi, and he was a spinal surgeon. And he said, Tom, you worked at Apple. You're a technologist. I'm a doctor. I've been studying balance for all my career, and um, people are falling, and they should not be falling. And I know how to stop them, but I'm just a doctor. I can only be with seven seven patients a day. Technologists can take this out to millions. So I will give you all the science. I will help you. I'll be your advisor. Let's do a company. So that's how Nimble was started. Oh, right. And he
0: thought that he had the answer to helping people prevent falls. What was the answer? And how did you technologize it? For
5: lack of a <laughs> well, better term. The, the the major issue is balance. Um, people fall. There's lots of reasons people fall, but the main determinant behind all of it is is balance. And balance, as you probably know, does decline over time. Um, but Balance can be improved, and what he 'd come up with is that uh, if you do exercises that include your brain and your body, uh, so cognitive problems as well as physical exercises like standing on one foot while you 're doing trivia or math problems or something, it actually um, that dual tasking approach literally rebuilds the synapses in your brain that you used when you were younger, improves your balance and uh, and allows you to be more functional and reduces falls. And
0: so you have developed uh, an app, uh, can I use the word software, that helps seniors with these kinds of exercises. Yes,
5: it's a smartphone, smartphone-based system.
0: Now, it is not all necessarily for the senior him or herself because you don't necessarily want someone who's vulnerable practicing this
5: alone. Um, you don't well what we what we tend to do is we'll give people a balanced test. Uh, the first thing is you know people don't really know their balance very well. Is it good or is it bad? So we'll give them a balanced test. It takes five minutes it's done on the smartphone, and um, then we they can go into a class uh, where there's a professional there. Or actually, they can do it on their own if they want. If if you're at a fall risk category, yeah. you should not be doing it on your own. And that way, you have um, therapists who use this. We work with uh, senior living commi- uh, communities around the Denver-Boulder area. Uh, we work with uh, aging groups and uh, some of the healthcare providers here to make sure that the test is, is administered by a professional, and they they work on this in a, in a safe environment.
0: Okay, yeah. give me an example here in the studio of of what I might do to test my balance, <laughs> or or and, and like a, a, a trivia question that would go along with it, just so we can experience this.
5: Okay, well, so we use the um, the foundation is the CDC steady protocol, and there's three things you do. One, you test for st- stability, which is basically Um, going from a half-tandem stand, which is your feet next to each other, to a tandem stand, which is like standing in a line, to to a one-foot stand, okay? Okay. And so we make sure that we know how well you can do that, um, and we progress you through that, okay? So if you're standing on one foot, (laughs) and then I might ask you uh, some trivia questions or some— Like what? Oh, we have history. We have uh, pop— uh, questions we have um, a lot of things you know just to vary the, the the key is to get your brain off of the fact that you 're standing oh, that you that you 're doing an exercise
0: I think what I hear that is surprising to me and what mm-hmm. you 're saying is that there can be progress, yeah because many of us think of this as a decline. Mm-hmm. my goodness, if you 've become unsteady there 's not <clears> much. Uh, to regain. You're saying that that's not true. Yes. uh, You can improve your balance. You can improve your balance. All right. So this is an example, Karen, of an entrepreneur seizing on an opportunity to improve seniors' lives. But isn't there also the risk for a lot of snake oil to be sold here and for a lot of fraud as well in this
4: population? You know, that certainly is an opportunity, but one of the things that Aging 2 does globally is we really pull together those startups um, with the, the agencies or organizations seeking solutions, and we actually test drive those products and services to ensure that, in fact, they are Working that they're effective um, and you know understood how to be used by a caregiver and an older person.
0: Okay, give me an example where you've done that.
4: Well, one specific example is with a, a company called Inhabitech. Uh, Inhabitech is a it's really designing a smart home that detects health changes patterns in the health, and we actually connected them with an organization called Eaton Senior Living, and they actually are deploying their product in six seniors apartments and tracking the data and comparing the data with actually what's happening in their life.
0: So what would it detect in a change in my life that would presumably, what, alert a healthcare professional or a family member or something like that?
4: One very specific example that they showed us during Denver Startup Week was the difference between someone who was having signs of dementia and someone who did not have dementia.
0: So your home could actually detect that in
4: you? The sensors were actually able to detect changes in patterns that definitely led you to the conclusion that, you know, this is the erratic performance or, or life of somebody who has dementia, unable to sleep, and wanders.
0: Do you assume um, that seniors may have struggles with technology, Tom, as you were developing mm-hmm. an app, for instance? Did you make that
5: assumption? And do you find that to be true? Or do you find that to actually just be an assumption people make? Yes, they have struggles, but the struggles are declining. Um, one of the things when we started the company four years ago the the uh, penetration of smartphones was about thirty percent um, now it 's the studies show it 's about sixty five percent so um, seniors are using smartphones they are using apps They're using it for facebook they 're using it for email things of like that they 're getting more comfortable however um, you have to really make sure that you design a user interface to be very focused on what a senior is comfortable with. You, uh, They may not have the best eyesight. So larger buttons, can't press the wrong button. Make sure it's a very fun and accommodating interface. And uh, that goes a long way to, to answering
4: your question.
0: Anything you'd add, Karen? Uh,
4: absolutely. One <clears throat> of the things that Aging 2 really promotes is building with and not for. So Every one mm-hmm. of our our pilot programs, we are integrating seniors into the actual testing so that they actually get to provide direct input on, you know, more of this, less of that, um, and really help design a product that they'll use.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And the longevity economy is the subject of the disruptors today, our coverage of startups in the state. We are talking about how entrepreneurs are looking at the growing senior population and solving some of their problems, including their risk of falls. And Tom, let's circle back to Nimble
5: and what you have found about your ability then to reduce falls. So we've tested the product uh, in a number of settings, and we've seen that um, balance scores in about uh, six to eight weeks will go up by about 30%. The most important thing we found, which was pretty staggering is that in one senior living community we worked in, um, half the people that were at risk of falls um, no longer were after using our product for six six weeks. And falls are really expensive Mm -hmm. one medically
0: in terms of the cost that we might all absorb. And I think of them as also pivotal moments in
5: a senior's health. It, It is often the decline follows a fall. Absolutely. Uh, You said expensive. Um, It's about a $50 billion medical problem falls in the United States. Uh, The average fall costs – You know, hospitalization costs $39,000, and there's 27,000 people that die every year from a fall. Um, So if we can do something about that, we're really impacting people's lives in a very positive way.
0: Karen, you mentioned seniors being involved in testing the products. How often are seniors the entrepreneurs? You know, I think of second and third careers or fourth or fifth these days. How much are they the ones identifying the problems and helping solve them.
4: What's interesting, at Denver Startup Week, we actually had a special article in the Denver Business Journal that focused specifically on three of our startups that had entrepreneurs who were 50 plus.
0: Give me an example of one.
4: Uh, Routineify was a perfect example. Pat Kelly is 62 years old. Um, he's a technologist, and he actually de- developed a special product that helps create routines in a senior's life.
0: Why is that important?
4: That's really important to help them in terms of remembering, um, taking medications, exercise. I mean, not only really does he create a routine, but he connects the routine with the family members so they understand what's happening in their parents' life.
0: Routine is incredibly important with medication, I have to think, and with exercise and perhaps staying vibrant. What other problems, uh, issues would you be eager to solve, Tom? I wonder
5: if since you've been introduced to this world, you have seen other opportunities. Um, I have to say we're really focused on false. (laughs) To to build a great company, we've been told by a lot of people, it's so great that you're really focused on one thing. If you can make an impact there – that's a that's a great business. What to, about to do. the fall nut have you not been able to crack then? Sorry, what about the fall nut have we not been able to crack? Yeah. What 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 uh continues to to mystify you? Uh that's a good question. I mean, I think that uh where we are right now is that we um we know we have a product that has an impact when you use it. The dose we is that we recommend is that 's so interesting to think of technology yeah, and doses yeah exactly right? yeah. it 's ten minutes a day three days a week, and we see significant improvements in in balance and getting getting people out of a fall risk category um, there 's a lot there 's a lot of other things that goes on that go on in people 's lives um, that from then on we 'd like to impact such as um, there 's tremendous information on stride, so I think our next our next focus will be on people's walking. Huh. Uh, for instance, um, if someone's walking along and you ask them a question, uh, and they stop, that means that their dual tasking is, is, has stopped working. Um, we think we've got some capabilities for, uh, the, the, the dynamic balance, if you will, the walking to also, um, be improved. And uh, if you can do that, then, then people feel safer leaving their homes and going and running their lives. Thanks to both of you for
0: being with us. We appreciate it.
4: Sure. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Tom Verdon, co-founder of Nimble Science, a Denver-based company focused on preventing falls in older people. Karen Brown is the Denver ambassador of Aging 2.0, which encourages innovation in the field of aging. And they were both part of Denver Startup Week and joined us for our Disruptors series about entrepreneurialism in Colorado. Something creepy and crawly takes place in southern Colorado this time of year. Tarantulas appear en masse, scurrying across highways and up walls. Arachnologists Paula Cushing of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and Brent Hendrickson of Millsaps College in Mississippi are here to tell us what these big hairy spiders are up to in that part of the state. Welcome to you both.
2: Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. I
0: also see you've brought some friends with you. Do you want to just quickly
6: introduce the other guests in our studio?
2: Sure. I'll let Brent introduce the little boy
6: he brought. Yeah. So I was driving up uh, from Mississippi earlier in the week, and on Tuesday morning, just north of Lamar, Found this little fella. North uh, of
0: Lamar, Colorado.
6: North of Lamar, Colorado. In the southeastern place. Um, and uh, this is a male, like, typical sort of big brown tarantula. Okay. Sometimes called uh, Oklahoma or Texas brown tarantula. One of the most common species in the United States. And and, uh, and he is, he, you said? Yes, it's is a he.
0: walking uh, from hand to hand as you manipulate your hand one in front of the other. That's right. And did, did you have a guest?
2: I did have a guest, but I almost got into a traffic accident and she was in the car and she got she rolled and so she got a little traumatized and she okay. doesn't want to come out of her little. <laughs> but who <laughs> is she? Who is she? She's the female of the same species. Okay. So and I've had her for about 10 years, so they are very long lived. Oh my mm-hmm.
0: goodness, the longevity. Okay, we have to answer the question what these tarantulas in the wild are doing. In southern Colorado, why they are moving about. How do you answer that question, Paula?
2: So what they're doing is the males are maturing, and they're leaving their burrows, their natal natal burrows, and they're wandering around looking for love. So So the males are looking for females.
0: Tarantulas burrow in the ground. Right. That's the first thing to understand. They're not web Weavers. They are not web weavers. Okay. They
2: do make silk, but they're not using the silk for prey capture.
0: Well, forgive me for interrupting. I just wanted to clarify yeah, that. And why are they leaving their burrows? What What is their aim?
2: Right. So their aim is love. These so love. the males are looking for females. And we don't really know how they're locating the females. The females stay close to their own burrows. They don't leave. And the males are wandering around looking for the females, and they're probably following sex pheromones. Wouldn't you say, Brent?
6: Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, they're they're they're, they're sort of in mass walking around these highways, finding fields, f- coming across silk that might be on the ground near burrows, and they'll stop and they start strutting, they start bouncing around, slapping their legs, uh, trying to get the females' attention. But we don't know how they're finding them initially. So the the females weave silk. Yes. Okay, the males do not...
2: They all do. They, they all, all use. Do. They all use silk. So the males. But they're not webby. They're right. they're webbing around their burrows. So oh. they're 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 covering the walls of their burrows with silk, and there's silk extending out of the entryway of the burrow. And that silk that extends out of the entryway probably acts like trip lines. They they don't have very good eyesight, so the spiders are using those silk lines that extend out of the burrow to feel prey insects that are walking past.
6: Is it possible the female mistakes the male for? Prey, then, yeah, that can certainly happen. Okay, Uh, especially at night. That they're usually the males are usually out wandering around um, at night, at least for this particular type, and they are sensitive to any vibrations that are near the burrow entrance. And if the male doesn't give the female the right signals, she can easily. You know, interpret him as being a prey item and, and we'll 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 eat him. So he's,
2: he's basically item. singing a silk song to her That's that right. is very different vibrationally than the <sighs> vibrations an insect would produce. Mm-hmm. So she can tell that it, it's a male and not food.
0: But this is a perilous journey for the males because, as you say, they might be crossing roads, Brent. That's right. And I imagine that there's a... a fair amount of roadkill is there
2: a... and, the, and, there's, and there's there's danger to a We're <laughs> <That's, that's right. laughs> collecting fact, the, fact, crossing when, when, the road. yeah
6: when, when i picked this little guy up or well, i guess he's not so little um 30 mile an hour winds coming out of lamar north north winds and i ran out there to pick him up on my hand and the wind blew him off my hand and probably a quarter mile off in the distance there's a big semi-truck coming down the other <laughs> way <laughs> Uh, so I'm in the middle of the road, and I finally had to take my hat off and scoop him up and run into my car, not really aware of any traffic that might have been behind me as well.
0: <laughs> How far north in Colorado do tarantulas come? In other words, we've been talking about predominantly southern Colorado.
2: Yeah, it's at least as far north as Pueblo, but I think with, with climate change, they're moving a little bit more north. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah,
6: we, we have some records of them from, you know, southern El Paso County, Uh, so south of, just south of Colorado Springs and they're making their way up slowly. You know, I think if the winters start becoming a little bit warmer, they'll be able to survive those higher elevations during the winter. Um, but they're probably not going to be in the, you know, the front range like the Denver area for a good bit of time. Because, I mean, they're they're big spiders, but they still don't move very far. But they probably will be slowly making their way up here. There are different types of tarantulas, we mm-hmm. should say.
0: Tarantula is not one thing. Correct. Are tarantulas... Dangerous are they a threat in any way to people
2: in the world there there 's at least one species a, a few species that live in Australia that have uh, venom that 's of medical importance to humans. but here in the United States i don 't think there are any species that have been documented documented to have medically important venom venom so they would they 're big enough that if they bit you you 'd feel it okay. The fangs are large it 's hard to get them to bite you as you saw when Brent was holding this male. He he just sees Brent as kind of a warm, sweaty surface to walk on. So he's not perceiving him as any kind of threat. Um, and even if they did bite, which, again, would be hard to get them to bite you, uh, the it would feel like a bee sting. But it would go away. It would dissipate after a few minutes, after a half hour.
0: I think maybe people's perceptions and fears of tarantulas are a, a bit outsized, do you think? Yes. Okay.
2: Yes. It's I think also the fears, tarant- yes. tarantulas are outsized too. I <laughs> yes. suppose for, for I think spiders. People's fears of spiders in general are are totally outsized.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan, and we're not calling you wrong for being afraid of spiders, but I- I'm I'm sitting across from one, and he's perfectly pleasant. Uh, okay, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about uh, the tarantula. Migration movement in Southern Colorado, which I have to say until this conversation was not a thing I was aware of, they 're on the look uh, f- look out for love, and uh, th- this is a situation where the the females are like, "You come to me, dude. What happens when they pair up? Tell us about the, the sort of life from there.
6: Yeah, so once they do pair up, the it might be a little hard to see, but on the front pair of legs of this male right here, he has these hooks. And with these hooks, he'll, he'll secure the female's fangs um, so that she won't bite him, um, but also it stabilizes her. And then he uses these little club-like, leg-like appendages up front called pedipalps, where he's got a little reproductive organ that's been saturated with sperm um, that he'll use. And he'll uh, fertilize the female, deposit sperm of the female, and make a hasty retreat Runs away as quickly as he can in oh. hope of finding other females. Sometimes the female will end up eating him, which isn't such a bad thing for him, contributing to, to, to the female. Um, but he'll continue to to wander around until he literally wears himself you know, to pieces. Uh, I see.
0: So one male may impregnate many females. Sure. And they, they don't hook up and sort of raise the family, leave it to beaver style. That no, not, no, that's not the tarantula way.
2: No. And and in the world of spiders, females tend to have the advantage size-wise. So Mm. amongst spider species, the females are oftentimes slightly larger to dramatically larger than Uh. the males. So when the males approach a female, he's approaching a much larger potential predator.
6: What do tarantulas eat when they're not eating each other? Well, they'll feed on any sort of insects. You know, the females hunker down their burrows. At night, they'll come out with their little feet sticking out the burrow entrance, and they're waiting for anything. So crickets, grasshoppers, um, you know, small centipedes, Um, it's even been documented that they can take small vertebrates, small, you know, frogs and other types of things as well. Absolutely.
0: My goodness. Okay.
6: Paula, you've led something called the Colorado Spider Survey since
0: 1998. And you've worked with volunteers and other scientists to collect tens of thousands of specimens, creating a huge online database. How are tarantula populations in Colorado in general? I know you made reference to climate change as changing maybe their range.
2: That's a great question and I we don't really know the answer to that. So oh. even though spiders, tarantulas, those arachnids are incredibly species-diverse group. There's over 47,000 described species of spiders on Earth. There's only about 600 professional arachnologists in the world to study these animals. So we're still kind of behind the times in figuring out how healthy the populations are, even what species exist in different areas. So we're still at that level of documenting species diversity, figuring out what species live here in Colorado. So we don't really know how habitat uh, degradation, how climate change is really affecting these populations.
0: That is to say, there, there may still be spiders to discover in Colorado. Oh, absolutely.
2: To dog- oh, my absolutely. Goodness. In fact, one of my volunteers just yesterday was trying to identify a, a spider, and neither one of us could identify it to one. We know what genus it was, but we couldn't identify it to a species, and it's very likely to be a species new to science, and it was collected in Montana. Ha! Huh. Are
6: tarantulas good pets? Oh, yeah, they make fantastic pets. Um, in fact, that was my first pet that I had as probably a four, three, four year old little boy. Um, they're, you know, the the North American species are fairly docile. Huh. They're long lived. Um, they're easy to care for. So you can feed them a few crickets, you know, a couple times a month, you can go on a two month collecting trip like I'm on right now and leave them at home and they're gonna be fine until I get back. Um, I'll say you actually grew up in Colorado. Oh, yeah, born and raised. How yeah. did your
0: family feel about you wanting a tarantula at four?
6: <laughs> I had very supportive parents, very okay. supportive
2: parents. <laughs>
0: Maybe that's what helps get you into the profession Absolutely. of arachnology. It's,
2: I would add, though, you need to be aware of where the tarantula, uh, how it was acquired. So there are oh. tarantulas that are listed on, as threatened or endangered mm-hmm. because they've been overcollected for hobbyists, for mm-hmm. people who want to rear them. So you want to know um, how how this that it was not a wild caught tarantula that you've got um, that you're buying from the pet store or from a hobbyist.
0: Wild caught? Oh, that is to say that there are tarantula farms. Is that
2: there are people who are rearing Raising. tarantula Huh. and selling them for right. pets. Yep.
0: Well, I, well, this could go on uh, for as long as tarantulas have legs, but uh, thanks for joining <laughs> us. We have to wrap up. Thanks so Thank much, you Ryan. So much. This was Thank fun. You. Paula Cushing studies spiders at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and Millsaps College arachnologist Brent Hendrickson specializes in tarantulas, and we'll talk about them Friday morning at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Thanks for joining us. Whether you have two legs or eight, I'm Ryan Warner, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News.